What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. I'd like to thank my sponsors, Round the X and Voyager, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear much more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today's guest is a physician with a medical degree from Columbia University and is the managing partner for the cryptocurrency investment fund, Blocktown Capital. He's one of the rare people with knowledge in both the medical and financial fields, so he's the perfect person to speak to on the show about the COVID-19 pandemic and its likely effects on Bitcoin and the market as a whole. He's co-authored papers on the COVID-19 pandemic, including an effective treatment for coronavirus and a two-step strategy to reopen America. In fact, his first paper was the spark that's caused the storm surrounding the use of chloroquine for treating the COVID-19 virus and was also the impetus for President Trump to start talking about the drug in the first place. Please welcome James Todaro to the show. All right, so let's talk about chloroquine. First, uh, can you please tell the story of how your paper reached the president in the first place and then clarify some of the misinformation and controversy around hydroxychloroquine in treatment of COVID-19? Sure, yeah. So I guess um, the backstory behind the chloroquine paper um, is that, uh, so I've been closely following the pandemic, if we can talk about that a little bit further and, and how that kind of ties in with my vision that we, you know, the, the second paper that we put out in April on, uh, on reopening America. Um, but it was in late February, early March that uh, I started to see evidence that chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine was being used in treatment of coronavirus. And this was coming from kind of anecdotally, as a, a kind of smattering of physicians, uh, there's already decent in vitro evidence showing that uh, chloroquine was effective in primate cells against coronavirus. And then you had these guidelines coming out of South Korea and China. You did some digging that showed that they were using this uh, treatment and that it was seemingly effective. And so we felt like there was enough kind of evidence at this point uh, for chloroquine in treatment of coronavirus that Greg Gagano and I, who we've been interacting with each other on Twitter for, uh, I think, over a year now, mostly regarding cryptocurrency projects. We both have a lot of similar uh, interests in this space. But since the COVID-19 pandemic started going on, we started communicating more and more about COVID-19. He had been doing extensive research in chloroquine's antiviral properties for about close to a decade. So he knew that mechanism of action pretty well. And then I am an ophthalmologist by training, so I went to residency four years in ophthalmology and was very experienced with chloroquine as well and the side effects. And so the picture came together that this was, it seemed a highly viable treatment for coronavirus while a lot of the downsides weren't there because it was a widely used medication. It's been issued billions of doses, described billions of times um, with, with little downside a lot of times. Um, and so that's why we then put together this paper that went out there. Uh, it was about, I think it was the next day after I announced the paper on Twitter that uh, Elon Musk uh, tweeted out our Google document. It was in the form of a Google document. We felt like uh, going the traditional publication channel was going to take way too long and we're going to be dealing with rejections and that slow academic process. So we just published Google Doc. Elon Musk tweeted out, then it started to make headlines. Uh, my colleague, 
Greg Logano, went on Laura Ingram, and then Tucker Carlson a couple of days later. And then the following day, uh, President Trump announced hydroxychloroquine as, as a treatment to seriously consider for COVID-19. Um, so it was a real whirlwind uh, back in March. He went from, uh, you know, you know, I built up a little bit of a following, uh, you know, regarding coronavirus. I've been talking about it for a while at that point, but it just kind of exploded in March, and we kind of became almost the, the leaders of this uh, movement of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine uh, for this pandemic. Um, moving to today, there's a lot. I mean, this is probably still the most controversial medication on the planet right now. Uh, both in terms of, I think, big pharma as well as politics. And I just wanted to, I guess, clear up some of the misconceptions that are around this drug that, that happens on, on kind of across the spectrum. Um, one being, this is not a medication that is likely to, to cause you harm. I think that a lot of people have the impression this is an extremely dangerous medication, uh, particularly focusing on the cardiac side effects. You know, rheumatologists call this a daily multivitamin for lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Those are its kind of main uses. Most rheumatologists don't even do an EKG on you before prescribing this medication. In um, Dr. Rayolt's uh, 3,000, 4,000 patients that he has treated with both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, he has not seen, I think, any deaths from, uh, you know, torsades or some of the cardiac deaths that that you're hearing about potentially more theoretical potentially from this this medication um, and actually if you talk to the cardiologists who are actually very knowledgeable about um, COVID-19 and the disease course they actually think that the which in their studies that show this that about 20 to 30 percent of hospitalized COVID-19 patients had these this cardiac inflammation called myocarditis uh, without any hydroxychloroquine treatment and then that can lead to arrhythmias so I think it's a little bit of this kind of confounding confusion claiming any of the cardiac kind of dysrhythmias on hydroxychloroquine, which it actually is probably largely just a, a course of the disease in most cases. Um, this, if I'm too long-winded, stop. I was just uh, absolutely not. No, I, I'm actually right. fascinated and I want to hear the entire story. So please. All right, great. The second biggest misconception that I've been really trying to drive home on Twitter for the last couple months now is this idea that you can use hydroxychloroquine late in the course of disease and it's going to be some magical cure or help. And that's just not how really any antiviral works for an acute infection. This, these, these antiviral effects really only occur within the first 48, 72 hours, a few days of symptom onset. And so when you look at all these studies that are coming out that are very, very negative against hydroxychloroquine, they are all looking at it in, in late treatment of very sick hospitalized patients. These, and this is the, the VA study that came out last month. This is the Lancet study that was just published last week. And then even the New York study. So in New York it said uh, they, they got this huge batch of hydroxychloroquine. They're going to start using it in patients, do a study, and assess whether it works or not. The first thing I said was, I, you know, I suspect they're going to be using it in sick, hospitalized patients, and it's not going to really show any beneficial effect. And I don't know what their thinking was. We want to preserve the, the hydroxychloroquine we do have for the sickest patients because they need it the most. 
but you know, that's that's the population where it's not really indicating it's not going to show any effect, and so it's essentially wasting the medication, um, which is what that study ultimately showed that treatment of those patients who are who are mostly studies are looking at hydroxychloroquine treatment in uh, in patients that are about two weeks out from onset of symptoms. So 14 days after, and they're bad enough where they're already in hospitalization. I don't so think it works for that. Yeah, so yeah. isn't there an issue there then? Um, I mean, the way that this virus in general presents itself, obviously, is sort of a slow burn. And uh, obviously, you know, with the 14-day uh, potential period before you're symptomatic, and then the way that they're telling people sort of to wait to get tested, by the time you're probably tested or very sick, is it already too late? So is there some sort of function of the process and the information they've given for how to really identify your symptoms and see if you're actually sick are really prohibitive to, if this did work, taking it early enough? So that's, that's an absolutely great point. And back in March and early April, there, there really wasn't enough testing, I think, that was happening and rapid enough testing where you're stuck in that exact dilemma. You didn't even know you really had uh, COVID-19 until you know, many days after your hospital. So by then, you already were bad enough to be hospitalized. It was still another three, four days or something like that before you tested. So you were really set up to kind of not be in a situation where you could receive hydroxychloroquine in the right treatment window. The, I would say in the U.S., the physician that probably has the, the best approach to this is is Dr. Zelenko. He's fairly well-known, definitely well-known regarding people that uh, support hydroxychloroquine. But what he does is he looks at the patients and sees a patient, and based on symptoms, he looks at who's the highest-risk patient. So we've now been able to stratify who is um, kind of really a danger from coronavirus and who is, is probably going to you know, feel sick, feel crappy, but could do okay. And so he stratifies those groups, and then based on symptoms, before the test even comes back, they'll, they'll test them. Well, before the test comes back, start a, a treatment course of hydroxychloroquine. And then if the test comes back negative, two days later, you can stop it. And it's extremely unlikely that it did any harmful effects in the two days you were on it. But it was kind of those two days faster that allowed you to get this medication system. And this isn't unusual in, in medicine. In, in ophthalmology, we do this for uh, giant cell arteritis, where before a biopsy will come back and start treatment with aggressive steroids, high-dose steroids. And then if the biopsy comes back negative, then we stop the steroids or we, we slowly taper them off. But, uh, so it's not unheard of to start a treatment while you're in that waiting period and then kind of coming off it, especially when the, the risk of such a short course is so low. So I think that can be a potential route if yeah. testing can be done in you know, five minutes or same day. Understood. So. I mean, it sounds like one of the big risks with hydroxychloroquine or anything else in this situation, uh, I don't even know how to put this. I guess I should say that doctors fear litigation, right? <laughs> in general. So, 100%. Right. So it would seem that prescribing or giving someone a treatment that has so much controversy around it and before there's a confirmation of disease or something like that, which I guess could be a case for an ophthalmologist with the steroids or, or, you know, someone goes in and gets a strep test, but they give them antibiotics in advance, any of these, um, you know, examples of where this happens. But I mean, wouldn't you think that doc doctors would be very fearful of doing something like this, especially in a pandemic where you're talk not talking about like one experimental patient, you're talking about everyone. I mean, yeah. wouldn't it be very yes. hard to convince physicians to do something like this that early? So Kind of from the, the theoretical, theoretical approach, yes. I would say that physicians are very, you know, you're, you're 
general physicians are very uh, kind of likely just to follow what's considered standard of care. And they only really tend to deviate from standard of care is, is when things are getting worse and you don't really have any good alternatives. And so that's kind of the, the second factor that goes into all those studies that are comparing uh, hydroxychloroquine use to non-hydroxychloroquine, where the, the studies don't really capture that, um, that idea that those patients were sicker. And probably the ones that continue going downhill are the ones that the physicians are like, okay, well, we got to try something with this patient. And so the liability goes down. When you have a patient that's decompensating or getting worse, you're like, okay, well, this is the best time. I'm going to try hydroxychloroquine. And that shows it doesn't work. Right, it's too late. That, right. That said, though, you know, there's a survey, there's a, there's a survey, a global survey done by CERMO that uh, assesses periodically about 6,000 or so physicians, uh, many of them who are treating, actively treating patients with COVID-19. And since we, late March, shortly after we put out our paper, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin continue to be the most popular used therapy, most commonly used therapies um, among physicians treating COVID-19. And it's still, if you, if you go to their survey, they're still at the top. So there are a number of physicians out there that, are, that believe in this, despite what I think kind of the, the media appearances look. Um, so they, they are out there, and there's a decent number that's far more, more commonly used than remdesivir or some of the other uh, antibody um, uh, treatments and plasma therapy. Remdesivir is extremely expensive, right? I mean, even if it worked, it would be prohibitive for a majority of patients. Yeah, remdesivir is just not a, a real good option for a couple of reasons. So the goal with a pandemic, this isn't just like a few people getting sick and you want to treat them. Uh, you can treat them late and get better and stuff. This is something where you have a ton of people. So you want to treat them early. You don't want all these people to get severely ill. And so there's really two options. There's a, there a vaccine, which there's a lot of research and studies uh, you know, going on that development path. And then secondly, something that can be widely used, something that can be oral, maybe even taken prophylactically, but something that can be used orally in treatment of remdesivir is, is an IV. So it's not really conducive to early outpatient treatment. You're not going to, you have a cough and a sore throat or a, you know, a cough shortness, but you're probably not going to go to your home and set up an IV for remdesivir, especially if there's you know, a large number of patients that are coming down with this. Right. Secondly, it is most likely going to be much more expensive. So um, I don't think Gilead has come out with, so Gilead's a manufacturer of remdesivir. I don't think they've come out with the exact price of it. I know that there's been uh, investment firms that have analyzed. Exactly yeah, a lot of conjecture. <laughs> right. And so it, it looks like it costs them maybe what I've read is $10 to manufacture a treatment course for it, but the, the fair price would be anything below $4,000 per treatment course uh, for a patient. Um, and then they kind of like uh, ICE, the investment firm ICE kind of landed on the fly charge around $1,000 for a treatment course. Right. Um, which, I mean, if you, if you look, so Gilead has done some great work with antivirals. They're actually the ones that come out with really the, the first kind of cure for hepatitis C. Right. Um, back in 2014, something around then. Um, they charged about $90,000 for that treatment course. So, um, you know, $1,000 isn't actually that much. It's a lot more than hydroxychloroquine, obviously, which is right. $5. But. So, you touched on this earlier, but it, the Lancet study, which, you know, I guess was reported on Friday, said that patients getting hydroxychloroquine were dying at a higher rate than other coronavirus patients. But I actually read that in the last 24 hours, the World Health Organization has stopped their studies completely. 
So I'm assuming, I mean, you touched on it earlier, the fact that perhaps these people already have the cardiac issues when they present in the first place. I mean, I, but, yeah. So I think that the two things uh, which I can elaborate a little bit on is, you know, again, is late treatment. So I would say that probably realistically, if you had similar groups of, of patients, they two, if the ones who received hydroxychloroquine and the ones who did not were actually similar, I would say it probably should show no effect. But the study didn't show that. The study, like you said, showed that hydroxychloroquine actually made it worse, which even medical professionals and physicians who don't necessarily believe hydroxychloroquine helps, this raises a little bit, of, this is, you know, a little bit unusual that this type of medication is going to actually almost double or more your, your rate of dying, which it takes me back to kind of the second point, which is what type of, so this is a, a global study. So these uh, researchers don't know anything really about these patients. They weren't the ones actually caring for these patients, it's kind of a large data set. And so, but if you're actually a physician, you're caring for patients and you're going through that thought process of who is going to get hydroxychloroquine, you know, because it's not standard of therapy, you're going to give it to those patients that you're desperate. Those patients that you are like, everything I'm doing is not helping this patient. Let me throw hydroxychloroquine at it. And you're like, oh, you know, that, that didn't help either. And so those are kind of your sicker patients. Whereas the patients that are uh, stable or even improving, why would you take a chance on hydroxychloroquine? If you're like, this patient is, is stable, they're doing fine, or they're recovering, you're not going to go a Hail Mary at that point, right? And so I think that the study does not, and then the study has been, you know, been analyzed by a number of people, uh, very respected physicians, not just kind of the general public on Twitter, but there's very smart people on, on Twitter as well who are not physicians who can catch these things as well. But um, they, they show that the study doesn't really actually have a good metric for assessing how sick the patients were between the two groups. And so I, I have a strong suspicion that the group that received hydroxychloroquine were far worse off than the, the non-hydroxychloroquine group. That'd be my probably main complaint with that study. Understood. So uh, going back, you, you mentioned that you posted it in a Google Doc instead of you know taking the time, obviously, and waiting months to be in the New England Journal of Medicine or presenting the paper in some manner like that. And But it ended up uh, leading to your Google Doc being censored and removed, correct? Why did That's that correct. happen? Why did that happen, do you believe? And, and what was that like? It's... It's unclear. They didn't. Uh, Google did not reach out to me, and my knowledge didn't reach out to Greg either, um, uh, on their reason for how it violated their terms and conditions. It just kind of went out of that blanket violating terms and conditions. It does seem, though, to me that uh, YouTube, which is uh, owned by Google, uh, Facebook, and um, yeah, and th those two seem like they've been very aggressive with censoring anything that is not in line with either the CDC or the World Health Organization recommendations. And I know the CEO of YouTube blatantly stated that, that ever, any recommendation that was made that was not in line with what the World Health Organization recommends that uh, would be censored. Um, and interestingly, and then, crypto accounts have been getting taken down too. Right. <laughs> and, right. So this is a problem that you, know, you and I and, and many people in crypto have been aware of for for a yeah, long time, a but now we're seeing yeah. right now we're seeing it come to to a conservative field like medicine, which is interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, so something that I'm very familiar with. So it, it was kind of surprising though, because a Google Doc is is uh, you know it's a little bit different from a YouTube video or a, maybe a Facebook video. So uh, you know, there's probably not too many Google Docs. To get I've never out. heard of that. I've literally <laughs> never heard of it. Yeah, I'm I'm not either. So YouTube and Facebook, sure, but like Google Doc, that's pretty aggressive. 
Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I think that, you know, it's really important to get, uh, and, and, and the World Health Organization and CDC, like, I don't think there's anyone that would say that they've been right on target all along this pandemic. Even people that are, you know, still kind of think they are, maybe they're late or to getting out the right advice. I mean, they've made huge mistakes along yeah. this path. I think that, I mean, I think you literally just touched on the biggest problem with this entire pandemic, which is, I mean, obviously we're polarized politically and, and everybody, you know, nobody believes yep. a fact when it's a fact, but that, that's a, uh, that's a topic for another day, I suppose. But really, I mean, you can even go back to, it was either late February or March. I'll never forget when the Surgeon General tweeted, you know, what are you people out there doing buying masks? Don't buy masks. They're for medical professionals. And then obviously yep. going the other way and saying, everybody needs to wear a mask. So um, it's, it's hard, you know, as like, it, you want to bang your head against a wall, honestly, when you engage with people, as you know, obviously, on the other side of whatever you believe on Twitter or wherever else. But, yeah. but depending on what you read and when you read it, how is someone even supposed to know what they are supposed to do? Or what is true? Yeah. Well, I guess to, to kind of go, go back to my first point, I think the first step should not be to remove any information that then goes against, let's say, World Health Organization or CDC. Right. Because, you know, as you said, they, they were wrong about masks. They were wrong about human transmission, I think, back in early February. They did not say, they said you should not restrict travel. They actually took it a long, a long time to call it a pandemic. Right. Um, so you, they kind of each step of the way, they were definitely late to the party, late yeah. to recommend, recommendations. So anyone that could have said something before that and had been right on, would have theoretically been censored, yet Cur they right. were just ahead of the curve. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's really, I mean, it's, it's really hard to separate yourself because this has now become, unfortunately, a political issue. <laughs> it's really quite divided on that, uh, on those lines. And it's, it's unfortunate, but I think that you can, there's still enough real data out there where you can make informed decisions. I would, I guess my, if you really want to figure out what's going on and have an idea. And, and to me, this was really important because this was affecting a lot of lives. I'm a physician. And then also I have a lot of investments. So yeah, of course we'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> right. And so it was like, this is, you know, back in you know, February, early March, was like, this is not going to do great for investments. I think at least initially. Um, but uh, so I think there's enough good information out there. If you're looking for the right metrics, you kind of, ignore all the politics, all the fluff, all the headlines, and actually get into the real data, I think you can continue to be actually um, a few weeks or months ahead of, of where this pandemic is actually going, what right. is real, right. what treatments are actually affecting this and which ones are not. That, that makes sense. So let's talk about your second paper, because that sort of leads into the, the future and, and what we can do to actually uh, live in this world with this, with this virus. It's called a two-step strategy to reopen America, correct? Can you tell sure. us about that? Sure, yeah. Um, so this is a paper we put out in, uh, I think, April 23rd, so mid-late mid April, um, that we believe, and this is Joey Krug, another uh, cryptocurrency entrepreneur, investor, uh, my colleague Moshe Craver and then Dr. Zelenko, we put together this paper that uh, basically outlines how we had enough information now at that point on the fatality rate of this disease. Um, what is likely, I still believe this, likely an effective therapy for early treatment of this disease with hydroxychloroquine. 
that we could now begin to reopen America. And that is extremely, was extremely controversial then, and, and still actually is fairly controversial. That said, um, I want to kind of take a step back and, and kind of show that I, I'm not, I haven't been like, um, just like kind of throw caution, the wind, go out there. This is a, a very careful, when we decided this, this was very carefully decided. I, I so I've been following the pandemic since January. My wife and I took a, a trip out to Vegas in early February, and we brought in 95 masks and, and wore them on the plane. Already in February. But in early February, because to me, this virus looked highly infectious, and there was a likely already in the U.S. We were behind on testing, and so it was probably already here. So to me, I was like, okay, there's enough of a concern for this. And then fast forward just a couple of weeks later into late February, we now were seeing outbreaks happening in Europe. There were still just a handful of cases in the U.S. I don't think it really had even its first death yet. I think that was February 28th. Um, but that's when we um, stepped up from social distancing to, to actually self-quarantine. Because So we were self-quarantining in late February. So this was about uh, three weeks before it became like... Yeah, you were a good two or three weeks right? ahead of the curve, right. for sure. Yeah. And to me, and so people, so people are like, well, why were you so cautious then? But now you're saying we should reopen America. You know, what, what's changed? And well, that is me, a good question because a lot of people don't see much change because there hasn't been much accurate dissemination of information. So, so please right, go. Exactly. No. And so, and so um, which I mean, I'd actually be curious because you're in Florida, am I right? I am. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so it came down to, so we already knew this was highly infectious. I, I thought that for a long time and I think most would agree about, about that. The question was, you know, how, how fatal is this? And for our calculations, you know, based on serology studies, based on, um, you know, case fatality rates, even by the, the CDC, it's funny, the CDC's most recent report on the infectious uh, fatality rate is actually pretty much the same thing that we put out in, in mid-April right. and uh, in our two-step strategy to reopening America. We got a lot of, well, there's a lot of positive attention, but also a lot of black um, people saying that was way too low. We, we calculated something around like 0 0.2, 0.3%. Um, but, um, but, so I think those fatality rates are actually much lower than what it looked like. Before it looked like it was three, uh, three to five percent people are dying. You have young people dropping dead on the streets. This is just this is crazy. But you know, when we started to get real data from the, the U.S. and uh, kind of data that we were confident in or Europe, you know, this this does not appear to be the case. And we, you know, we've I think we've seen kind of the, the peak at least um, before maybe the fall. But the the peak throughout the summer I think is already in. And there's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of criticisms on the states that began to open up uh, a month or two ago, and you know, wh where do those states stand now? So we could look at at Florida and Georgia. If um, you don't believe they're cooking the data again, because nobody believes any of the data, but yeah. right. So, so that's. I mean, the, I mean we do so, know for a fact that Georgia put some dates conveniently uh, out of order to show the curve uh, dropping, and that Florida obviously has had some litigation or controversy against DeSantis over his release of the information as well. So, for sure. So, 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 talk. So, we'll just talk for a second about Georgia and Florida. So, right. So the big thing was they opened up. Um, I don't know, month. It's been about so a month go. for Georgia, yeah. Right. Um, and in Florida, when, I mean, they were kind of always loose on restrictions, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So 
they were always kind of loose on it. And so about a, a month ago, you had it where, you know, Florida and Georgia, their, their cases are going to spike, that's going to spike, just give it a, a month because it takes time, which sure, it does take time. And so now it's about, about a month later, and so we really haven't seen that. So now the, the next step is, you know, are the numbers real? And so that's a, that's a really kind of tough question to get into. But if you just kind of take a step back and say, okay, maybe some numbers are, are fights and, and this and that. You know, you got to remember, Florida has less than one-tenth the number of, of deaths as New York. So, so right, slightly larger population. Probably population density, of course. But well, yes, that's right. a huge, yeah. huge part of it, of course. No mystery um, that South Florida is bad and the rest of Florida is fine. <laughs> right. But Florida also then, even going further in the mortality, it has a, a, an older population yes, in New York. So true. there's also that other metric. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it's so far less, and it's much less than, than Michigan as well. I mean, um, I, I imagine Florida has some populations that are close to the density of Michigan, maybe. Um, but, uh, but we're not seeing. So even if you say those, those, the numbers are false or they're kind of, you know, mixed up a little bit and stuff, you're not seeing this tremendous spike in cases. You just, right. and neither in Georgia, you're just not seeing this, this spike, whether it's 30% off or... I, I'm assuming that the <laughs> argument for that is the weather. So I think, so this is something that I said a, a long time ago back in, Early March, because I think that the weather is gonna is gonna change things. You, you're, um, you know, more people are outdoors. The humidity is up. The transmission of this, this virus is gonna go down. And um, and yeah, I mean, that's just like that's how the flu works too. It's not it's not really magic. Flu season is September, October to about March. Um, and so you know, I think that this idea of states trying to keep these lockdowns in place throughout the summer. You know, it's a it's a losing battle. First of all, you're not going to win it. No, that's you're, you're not. Clear, that's that's <laughs> very clear now. I mean, even in the places where it's quote unquote lockdown. I mean, I can tell you in my county, you're supposed to wear a mask legally. You know, they they've said that there's an order, and I I mean, I have not seen a single mask in weeks. Roundthex.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is take all your small purchases and round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that spare change into any of over 30 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can view various exchange balances all in one dashboard and round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do all this without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Go to roundlyx.com and use the promo code WOLF for $4 in free Bitcoin after making your first roundup or purchase. That's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com and code WOLF for $4 in free Bitcoin. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. People, people here are partying like it's 1999. I mean, there's, it's right. back to, you know, it's almost like they're doubling down. So... <laughs> They're making up for uh, for April. 
Um, you're exactly right. So, and, and, and I can say that I think Memorial Day really kind of hit that point home where it's like, you know, these people are not going to really not go to beaches or they, if they can't go to restaurants, because I think it's unfortunate because really it's small businesses that are, I think, getting hurt the most in the of States. Course. So lack of, because people are still gathering. Like, you know, I have I know a lot of people that went, just went to their, you know, the they family member with the biggest house or with the pool and yeah. everyone's most quarters partying there. I mean, so, yeah. you know, people aren't really going to stay socially isolated or even social distancing throughout the summer. And so you're right. going to see more and more. So Michigan here is probably one of the strictest lockdowns. We're actually now still a stay-at-home order in effect until uh, June 12th, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it, this isn't going to continue throughout the summer. It's just it's, it's not feasible. I think, though, that the, the interesting thing um, will be seeing what happens in the fall. Because I think there's a lot of concern about a, a second wave. A lot of people look at the... Uh, Spanish Spanish flu. Right. I mean, right. there's exactly. never been a pandemic in history that didn't have a sizable second wave to basically just dwarf the first wave. Correct. I mean, it pretty so, much is par for the course. Right. So that would be the, so right. So there, that is, I think the, the, the real question at this point, I don't think the summer, I think people are getting kind of a little bit uh, bent out of shape on like what you know, this summer, but I think the fall is going to be your, first of all, I think you're almost certainly going to have, a, a lot of fear, concern um, as we enter September. And it'll be very, I think, important to keep a close eye on, on the real metrics, on the number of positive cases, the ratio of tests to positive cases, uh, the number of deaths, to really have a handle on, on how, you know, what this second wave is going to look like. Is it, as you said, going to be a very severe wave, or is, it, you know, is there a chance that maybe the virus is mutating something that's a little bit different from the last two seasons, so, uh, you know, a month or two ago. That will be some of the important metrics. I think that knowing that will actually be critical to knowing, uh, say, how the economy is going to be doing or how the S&P or how your cryptocurrency investments will do. Because I think if you have a, a worse wave where you're talking about potentially going back into lockdowns, uh, you know, who knows if we can actually create a vaccine for this. It's actually, you know, it's not like you can create a vaccine for everything. Right. Um, and how effective that vaccine will be. Yeah, I mean, pe people pretend it's like some slam dunk, but I mean, <laughs> right. there's so many viruses, including basically every coronavirus that have no vaccine. So. Right. It's like, it's actually very hard to create an uh, effective vaccine and people almost act like it's a given. And I'm sure that the medical researchers and scientists are like, you know, this is actually, this would be a, a heroic feat if we're able to come up with uh, yeah, especially you know, when they're saying, especially when we have politicians saying by the end of the year but i understand why right. They're that. right yeah <laughs> you might have some you know some basic but yeah, and then and it takes time even to roll it out to effect like, well, you don't want everyone testing, to, like, if you're going to give it to everyone you'd really rather not find out right. in a year that they're all dying from it <laughs> right so there's it's a long long process on that so i think that um you know since since i know you we both do a lot of investments in the investment audience. I think it'd be very important to keep an eye on what's happening with COVID-19 uh, in the fall because I think that's going to, again, right. dramatically affect your, your Bitcoin cryptocurrency investments as well as maybe traditional stocks. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the market right now is, I don't know what it's smoking, but we all need some. I mean, it's like ignoring every economic indicator and piece <laughs> of data and just, I mean, it's obviously, I mean, we all know you know, QE and, and, and yep. what, what's going on. And we can all see that that's behind it. But I do think that largely at this point, 
uh, it sees sort of, you know, an optimism about the reopening. It's not pricing in uh, fall, you know, second wave, I don't think. So, yeah, as you said, I think it's pretty wise to be cautious and, and, and keep your eyes open. So uh, how do you believe that it would affect Bitcoin if there was a second wave or if there wasn't, I guess? Yeah, so if there was, you know, I would say it was the same same effect that I, I kind of thought was coming uh, in, in March. Um, is And I, I actually said this for, for years because a lot of people, they would ask, you know, if, um, if the economy goes down or stock market crashes, you know, would Bitcoin go up because, you know, sound like, and I was like, well, not initially. I think initially, right. everything is crash. Yeah. Every, right. Everything yeah. is, and exactly. And so, and that's exactly what we saw in March. S&P was tanking, Bitcoin was tanking. Um, and I think we're going to see that same thing potentially in the fall if, if this second wave comes back, um, that comes back in a serious way. I think you're going to have S&P, I think you have Bitcoin that, it takes a hard hit. It's always difficult, I think, to guess or know the exact bottom. Definitely can't guess at this point, I would say. But um, you know, as it gets closer, maybe a better idea. But I, I think that would be possible. If it doesn't come back with any deal, if there's not a whole lot of, of fear around this second wave and, and there really isn't a second wave. Everything should rip. <laughs> I do think that it has a possibility to have a really strong end of year. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I'm saying if you're if if we're like in Christmas and there's somehow no second wave, I mean the economy's going to absolutely I mean every the, the market I should say. I don't know about the economy. I don't know if people still have jobs, uh, you know, the important right. the actual <laughs> That's a different question, but yeah. the important factors, but the market itself, I would right. I assume we would be seeing, you know, all-time highs if the virus really to, proves to be gone, uh, some sort of dark magic. Um, yep. you know, but I, I don't know. So really quick, back to the, the paper that you wrote and uh, yep. actually getting back. So you, you said obviously that you were somewhat, you know, I, I won't say alarmist, but you were early to, to go into quarantine and to take this seriously. And now you've written a paper on going back out. So what are the core right. elements of what an individual should be doing if they're starting to leave their home and venture back out into the real world? I think it's a lot about uh, protecting the people that are most at risk. So, you know, the, the fatality rate in, in the young, it really just healthy people under 50, 60 in general, is actually really low. Everyone has the, the single story, the friend of a friend, or the, that, that was young and didn't do well. Kawasaki, uh, right. Yeah. Right. And they, right, exactly. Even the, you know, some rare disorders in small kids. But, you know, I even had a case from H1N1 where um, one of my best friend's uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife, actually caught H1N1 and had to go in an induced coma and uh, was on ECMO, which is basically mechanical yeah. uh, heart and lungs. So like everyone, everyone kind of has that. Anecdote. But if you really look at the numbers, the, the risk of, I think, having serious morbidity or, or even um, mortality from, from COVID-19 is extremely low. So now you're sitting there, okay, so now the people that are at risk are the, the ones with the comorbidities and um, older, but even kind of more um, targeted than that is, is people in nursing homes. I mean, that is a very small percent of the population, but accounts for about 40% of the nation's COVID-19 deaths. Yeah, I mean, so, once it hits a nursing home, it's just right, devas it's, devastating. It's, yeah. Right, it's highly contagious, rips to that nursing home, has a bunch of highly vulnerable, compromised individuals. And that's, I think, where we kind of really failed. And, and I don't think that the... The quarantines, you know, at least there doesn't seem like there's any good evidence out there to show that the quarantines help protect those in nursing homes. 
really at all. Um, well, it's, it's, if they're locked in with the virus, that's a pretty bad situation. Right, right. And so, and then they, even in New York, Cuomo had ordered patients that tested positive to go back to nursing homes. Right, other have to assume that so. they did at least mitigate some risk by not allowing infected people to come visit. So uh, it could have been much right. worse there's, in that, right. in that situation. So there's some, some, some right moves, but I think a, a lot of wrong. But so I think, first of all, it, targeting protecting nursing homes. So this might require frequent testing, testing of staff, whether it's fever checks or, or intermittent um, uh, COVID-19 rapid testing, serology testing maybe, um, if, it, if indeed people have immunity, if people have got this season have immunity, next one, I think that would be important to look at. Um, but yeah, protecting those elderly, obviously not sending back uh, nursing home patients who tested positive or were just recently sick with it. Um, then moving down to the, the next tier, um, of the, the people that are that, that have comorbidities, so I so I guess it comes a little bit down to um, you know my fundamental belief. So one of the things that attracted me to, to Bitcoin uh, six or seven years ago was the you know, censorship resistance, sound money, gave me the freedom to control my own money, to transfer it wherever I wanted, and so that's kind of my general um, idea regarding opening up America. Because I think that you know I don't think mandatory lockdowns. Are really the solution. I think you're applying a, a blanket um, kind of enforcement to protect a relatively small percentage of the population, which almost seems a little bit backwards. Wouldn't you almost act like a bodyguard to rather protect that small percent of the population as opposed to enforce, you know, put masks on four-year-olds, um, you know, no, no you know, enforce socialist things. Small businesses are going to stay shut down until. Um, there's a vaccine if there is one. Um, it, it just it, it doesn't seem like the right path. And so I think that basically the people with comorbidities, so we're protecting nursing homes, now you have people with comorbidities. I think that everyone, you know, they should kind of make a decision on, on what their plan is. Is their plan, like, they, can you do you want to wear a mask? Like, like my, my parents did not want to catch this disease. And so they're basically like, well, if, if I come around, you're going to wear a mask. <laughs> Um, and, you know, in 95 masks because if you have any exposure to protect themselves and you know is that make more sense than saying the entire country has to wear masks I mean to me it, it does to protect that small percent of the population as opposed to uh, basically changing the whole dynamic of America but why is a mask such a political statement now? I mean, you know, I've read I've read everything from like wearing a mask will give you cancer to, you know, like if you breathe into a mask, you're going to inhale CO2 and die. I mean, it's laughable. There's so many people who wear masks every day. And and there's a reason that physicians wear masks, right? I mean, we can't to, to say a mask has no purpose. Now, I understand what you're saying, which is that, you know, if you choose not to wear one and you're not the most at risk person, then, you know, YOLO, that's your choice. But um, it's a bit absurd to say that a mask is useless, correct? Or else doctors and, and, and nurses wouldn't wear them in the first place. I would say mostly, yeah. So first of all, it seems like almost anything can become a political issue now. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's hilarious. And but. so it's, it's amazing that, that masks have kind of really been um, the, the point, the focal point of that recently. Um, so a couple, couple comments on masks. So you know, it was kind of a little strange to me, the, the, C, the official CDC recommendation is um, to, you know, make your own homemade mask. Like, that doesn't seem terribly professional. Like, for uh, a country as, as wealthy, as, as, you know, robust as the U.S., where, 
you know, the, the treatment, the, the, the cure, the, the recommendation is to do something that's completely untested and we're going to enforce that now across the board. That's, that just, it kind of doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. If it was really that absolutely critical, then I would say you have a little bit more of a standard guideline. Now, maybe there really is just a shortage of masks, but like it's been three months now. I mean, yeah, you can buy masks on Amazon again. Now. Yeah. yeah, you can right. buy masks again. You can. Right. So, like this idea of like crocheting a mask or using a bandana or something. I don't know. That does that help? Maybe. I'll, maybe I'm assuming that's just more spread. like preventative of touching your face or putting your finger in your mouth or something. But yeah, right. you know, that isn't going to stop right. the virus. Yeah. Right. That could. Those those barriers are not small to really block the virus. Um, there is some evidence because. Um, where it was actually interesting, they did a, a study, I'm not sure how robust it was, but they basically took a, a t-shirt fabric and, you know, kind of determined how many viral particles or viral sized particles could get through it when they kind of just blew it through it. And, and there is some, some decrease of the, the projection of these particles. So when you're looking at it purely from a spreading the disease uh, point, I think that surgical masks and maybe even some of the homemade masks, especially a little bit thicker material, will decrease the, the projection of the, of the spread. So instead of like the six feet, maybe it decreases down to a foot or three feet and then decreases right. the amount of particles out there. Right. So I can see some evidence for that. Um, regarding the, you know, you make a, a great point. It's a little bit double-edged regarding masks because doctors who are caring for COVID-19 patients don't wear bandana masks. They don't even wear no, surgical masks. they wear masks. face shields, of course. <laughs> they, wear, they wear N95 masks, and then they have shield. some type of face yeah. shield for their eyes. So, you know, that's the real protection. If you're sitting there saying, oh, I really want to eliminate spread of this as well as protect myself, you're going to put on N95 mask, and then if you're really aggressive, you're going you're gonna to put on goggles. Um, so, the, like everything, there's kind of a bunch of gray area. Am I team mask? Am I not team mask? I would say that, you know, at this point, when you're comparing bandana masks to no mask, I would say that, you know, it's a soft enough call that it really should be up to the freedom of the individual. To right. You wore, but you, you personally wore one when you got on a plane as early as February. So, I mean, you uh, know. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that was in 95. That wasn't a right. bandana yeah. or a surgical of course. mask. Um, of course. Yeah. No, I, I understand that, that, that all masks are not created equal. I mean, I have, you know, uh, been somewhat outspoken and I guess I, I approach it from a different way. I, I agree with all you're saying about its effectiveness. I guess what it comes down to me is like, it's a very small sacrifice, even if it's unclear. And, and one that, I mean, I can say personally, and we don't have to get into whether it should be legislated or not, but like one that I personally, like if there's even the chance one in a thousand that I don't, randomly infect some stranger because I just put on a mask when I'm in certain places. It just seems like such a small ask to, to like for, for society, you know, like uh, that, that's my position. I understand that other people have a different position, but you know, when you talk about reopening, I, I feel like social distancing and reopening are only as good as like the person who believes in it the least. <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm out there, if I'm out there and trying to be somewhat respectful and someone walks up in my face and spits at me, because I'm wearing a mask, which I don't think is happening often, but we've seen it obviously, or just like someone who doesn't believe in it comes up and sneaks me a high five or puts their arm around me or something. Right. Then it, that, then I can't practice my own comfort level of it. So it almost seems like you have to default to 
small gatherings, six feet away and a mask in public, or at least in, in a restaurant or in any private place. Maybe not when you're just like walking around in a park, I don't wear a mask, you know? I guess it, it all comes down to yeah, like how, I, I guess that cost benefit, like, um, I, I think you, you heard, you talked about uh, having kids on this show, right? Yes, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I have young kids. Okay. So, I have young like, kids and I have immunosuppressed parents. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, right. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, do, do your kids wear masks? No, absolutely not. But we, we, we're still effectively in isolation. You know, we haven't really, we haven't breached it. I've every meal I've eaten for 10 weeks has been cooked in my house. We're pretty, you know, like we go out and play in the yard and we run, run around the neighborhood and we'll go to the park and stay away from people. But by and large, we haven't gone to any indoor public places or the kids haven't gone back to school, nothing like that. It'll be an interesting, I, I think probably decision for your house and whether the kids go back to school or not. I was, I was actually homeschooled my whole life, so I never went to school. Yeah, well, um, we, we've already made the decision not to send uh, them to camp. We have a unique situation where we have help. Um, so it's not, we, we, we're not desperate. You know what I mean? We can, we can wait it out and uh, let everybody else be the crash test dummies, so to speak. So um, I think there's, there's no, there's no, um, I'm not going to fault anyone that's being cautious. Um, I completely I can see the approach and, you know, as I said, I was wearing a mask on a plane in early February. Um, the one thing I, I would say, again, it kind of comes down to that, that cost benefit. Like if, uh, you know, how much you're going to struggle, like there's guidelines now coming out that, you know, kids over two years old, if they're going out, need to wear a mask. Like my, my five-year-old, my five-year-old is not going to wear a mask. And if she does, <laughs> right. she's going to stick her fingers in her mouth under it. I mean, it's right. just realistic. It just, that's, and we were, we had a planned trip, a family trip to Florida and, in early March, and I was like, "There's just no way my kids are going to go through this plane flight in some responsible way." And so we, we just actually canceled the family trip. Um, and so that's like, you know, so how like how far, like how far are people going to be like? Are teachers going to spend the entire time in the classroom like fighting with the kids to like wear their mask? I mean, the, the kids are going to get caught yeah, sitting there. I mean, it's like, right. so there's like certain right. degrees. Like, if, you know, as an adult, if you're like, "Yeah, it's no big deal. It's you know, it's fine for me to wear a mask." And I think that if it even has a, you know, a small percent of saving one life or preventing one person from being sick, then that's, that's what I mean. I've joked, like I I would wear a pink unicorn hat if, (laughs) if, if there was even some evidence that it could like protect my parents or, or somebody else in the community. I'm just, I mean, I'm just built that way. You know what I mean? So it, it just, that's why to me, it seems like, like I said, a small ask, but I do get it. And I think it's funny because I, I, I guess people view me as like that. I want to, believe people should stay quarantined forever. I absolutely don't. In fact, it's the opposite. I know that we need to reopen as a result. Obviously, I mean, people need to survive. There's bad things happening when people are stuck at home. Those things are very obvious. I just wish that we could do it with a, a, a solidified plan in place where I felt like everyone else would be playing by the same rules as me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're not going to stay inside uh, forever. We're not. You know what I mean? Nobody. No, we're definitely not. Which we're seeing this. I like, guess, like you said earlier, in the summer is going to break that. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Comes down to fall, but yeah, I, at the end of the day, you know, I think masks. It's a, it's a personal choice. Um, I, I don't think it should be enforced with a fine or or a violence. Um, but uh, I, I know it's an extremely controversial opinion, um, and I don't think that people are going to be wearing any masks during the summer, which we're already seeing as well. I have uh, not so I seen a single person wearing a mask. It's so I think like, that's, so anyone that's on that team, it's, it's kind of a losing battle anyway. But, uh, 
Right. And I'm saying, and theoretically people here, and I, I think it's absurd, but people are supposed to be fined when they're not, but uh, as a cop really going to walk up to someone without right. a mask, even I mean, let's imagine yeah. that police officer actually believes that they should be wearing a mask and needs to be six feet apart. That's asking them to put themselves at risk to give a minor violation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I mean, that enforcement, I think you, you've seen kind of some of the cases on the news, but I think they're far few and far between. What are the like, I guess, secondary effects of this on the medical system. Obviously, I mean, there's a lot of people who are, are decidedly afraid to, you know, visit a hospital for something that actually may be serious and they may, you know, need to be seen by a physician, but they, they fear the virus. Yeah. So that's a, a great question, which actually kind of gets into the whole pros benefits of, of having such a such a lockdown in place um and you know unfortunately i don't think we'll have the real good numbers on the impact this had on the, on, on actual lives outside of strictly COVID 19 deaths um until much later but I, I know you know from the early data that i have seen it does seem like there's been i mean hospitals report a lot less i mean a lot fewer patients are coming in for screening a lot right. of your patients are coming in for heart attacks or strokes, which these people aren't just not getting them now. They're not no longer, it's not like they're no longer getting breast cancer or right. prostate cancer or anything like that. They're still getting all these things. So now you're delaying the diagnosis of these conditions. You're kind of maybe leaving that therapeutic window even where, um, and right. so like that, that's something that takes years before mature. A lot of those people are, and a lot of those people are diagnosed at routine appointments without, you know, right. symptomatic, just, you know, literally finding a lump when you're at a physical. Right. And so if you, you know, uh, acutely, like for the last of the last couple of months, I would say it probably affects the amount of people who went in for uh, you know, strokes or, yeah. or heart attacks. But like if this lockdown continues, we kind of set it all up again in the fall and we go back to that we're again waiting on that vaccine until mid 2021 or something now i think you're going to start to see some kind of real serious lags in, in diagnosing some of these conditions that um that will, will kill people yeah what's interesting with regard to the second wave i actually read last week of course i was trying to figure out when like gator football would would be back and if they would, <laughs> they would allow people in the stadium or not um the important actually, stuff, right yeah the, the very important stuff so but it was interesting because universities are taking like these very diverse approaches to to the fall and there's a lot of universities actually that have said they're going to open august september october and then actually in advance, they've planned to go online after Thanksgiving as a result of an assumed second wave. So, I mean, there's a lot of people who are already reacting to the assumption that that's going to happen. And then there's, of course, yeah. there's universities that just aren't going to open at all. And then those that are, like again, who are just going to go for it and hope for the best. I think one of the things that's interesting about the education thing is I think it was easier to charge people forty thousand dollars a year exactly. when at least you're and when at least you're going to classes and you feel like but if you're sitting at home in your pajamas watching some lecture for two, three hours a day, you're gonna start to wonder you know, why you're paying forty thousand um, dollars. Yeah, and I mean so. you can do that on YouTube, let's be honest. <laughs> right. I mean, as crazy as it is, like there's a certain level of university, obviously. You went to Columbia Medical School, I went to yeah. the University of Pennsylvania undergrad. Um there's a certain level where 
I don't want to say you're not getting a better education. You are, but where you're paying for the the paper at the end, right? The name on the paper. So, for I sure. you know, I don't see like Ivy League universities. People will continue to pay for those kind of things. But yeah, for a kid like at a state school, or why would you? Why would you even not just punt a year or two and see what happens, and you know, try to learn a craft or start a company or or something like that? So I know a lot of smart people that are thinking that is the the next play, and, and I personally am, am on board with that as well. I think this this pandemic has kind of maybe just uh, opened some more eyes to that. Yeah, it's accelerating think, an existing right. process. Like we always, my, my colleagues and I call it the, the, kind of the education bubble, <laughs> where you know everyone's going to college, the tuition just keeps going up every year, and I think that you know it, even if you want to learn things, I, you don't have to go to college. Like for medical school, you know, uh, to become a physician, you, you have you have to right. Uh, if you want to be a physician but, or a lawyer or some professional, right. that requires yeah. But you know, for most people, like you don't, you, you could actually probably be much more effective in learning what you are passionate about or what you want to go into independently. I think. But uh, again, I was homeschooled, so that's the way I. Yeah, I you, you learned, think that so, way. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> But, but I mean, that's, that's actually really interesting because you obviously got an undergrad, you went to med school at Columbia, which is prestigious and also expensive, but then uh, was it, I mean, was it timing and luck that you got into crypto and then you just hit it big with your fund timed correctly in 2017 that you didn't actually have to pursue it after going through all that education? Because you, I mean, you're not practicing as a physician right now, correct? I mean, you're correct, more, in the, yeah. more in the finance space. I'm more in the investing. COVID brought me back into medicine. Um, so, uh, so, so I first started investing in crypto back in my last year of med school, back in 2013, 2014. So regarding entry points, I'd actually say I was kind of unlucky. Yeah, you were too, too <laughs> early. Fortunately, right. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't actually uh, you know, put too much in at that point. Um, and so I was able to ride it down into, in 2015. And the fundamentals, though, to me, did not change at all. And just the more I studied the space, and I had a great network of, of people that were very like-minded and also investing heavily in the space. And so we kept bouncing ideas off each other. I think it's very easy during bear markets to kind of, uh, you know, we're no longer thinking about it. And then you like, it, you know, you're not thinking about those investments. And then you just kind of like, oh, I need to pay my mortgage. I need this or whatever. And you just kind of exit the space or you get kind of interested in, in different types of investments. Right. But we kind of kept a lot of energy there, continued to invest really heavily in 2015. And then, yeah, when 2017 uh, came around, it was, um, you know, it, it, it did very well. And so we, uh, so my, my brother, uh, he left medical school. He was uh, halfway through medical school and he I mean, dropped out. A, just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> my, um, my other brother was a, um, he went to the University of Pennsylvania as well for undergrad. And he was a trader for Citigroup. And then he, uh, he left and joined a, um, uh, crypto uh, research firm, and then I, um, I I finished up residency because I was only I only had like four or five months left after, uh, after in, in early 2018. But then yeah, like you said, I, I stepped away from practicing medicine to just focus on, on managing investments. It was just it um, it, it would have been pretty negligent to not. Uh, not finish yeah. and also not to finish your uh, if you were a few months out in a residency i mean eight nine years into a extended education 
Right. It was, but I mean, so what was a story. And, like your brother drops out of medical school, you finish your residency and then basically say fuck it to medicine and are able to, you know, go uh, play with magic internet money full time. <laughs> That's right. The thing what I will say, though, that was kind of disheartening about the, uh, the whole medical field is how much bureaucracy has kind of entered it over the yeah. last decade or so, where, you know, a lot of physicians... And this is just increasingly more so, feeling like they're not actually making decisions for the patient. They're almost uh, kind of the bureaucratic decisions or quality of care is being handed down to them. And that's actually, you know, what we've seen in this pandemic. You had physicians that were wanting to prescribe a certain medication that governors or, you know, instructed pharmacies to not fill those medications, uh, threatened license, removing your license or you know, make an impingement and find your license if you did so. And so basically we had these physicians who were kind of not really in control anymore of how they care for patients. And and that is and so that was really came to light during this pandemic, but um, it's kind of always been the case. And so and that's why I chose ophthalmology because it seemed like it was you did have the most control over caring for your patients still. But right. so much more of the physicians that are in the hospital systems, you you really start to, to lose any of that autonomy or being able to actually make, like, I think, your own smart decisions. Yeah, I mean, my father is a ER physician. He ran the emergency room at the University of Florida. And um, I'll never forget, it must have been 1990, 1991, that he sat my brother, who didn't listen, my brother's a <laughs> ENT, but he sat us down and said, never become a doctor. For, for those, for the exact reasons that you just described. And this was in, you know, the late 80s, early no, 90s. He, he saw it early. Yep. Because he was, you know, running, you know, when right. you're, I guess, in an academic setting and seeing how the insurance companies were growing and all those things. But, you know, I can definitely see why you would uh, choose crypto, especially if you had already sort of, you know, hit the jackpot to some degree over the medical degree. And you can always fall back on medicine. What a funny thing to be able to say you can fall back on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's not a bad parachute, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it's also, but it's also, it's, it's, you, it's, it's strangely enough, it's been extremely helpful uh, for, like you said at the beginning of this talk, merging COVID-19 medicine and investments. It really kind of came together during this time. And I think gives a, a little bit maybe of an advantage in seeing what's going on, um, you know, regarding our investments during this time. So it's uh, even from an investment side of things, it's improving. Right. I mean, well, is it, I mean, investing is about, managing risk, right? I mean, the best traders, the best investors are the ones who have effective, you know, risk management can analyze risk. And I mean, isn't that, isn't that, I mean, you're, you're in two fields, obviously that's a hundred percent true for a physician, but in life, I mean, it's how you manage risk. That's the decision to wear a mask or go out. Or if you, you know, all of this sort of comes down to the same principle. So if you have that talent or skill, you should excel in all of these fields. Exactly. So, um, where can people follow up with you after this? Where can they find you? Where can they, uh, c- you know, keep up with, with what's, uh, what's coming out? Twitter, James uh, Tadaro, MD. So my first name, James, last name, Tadaro, T-O-D-A-R-O. And then MD, the medical doctor, is where I post all my thoughts on COVID-19, pandemic, what I think is going to happen in the upcoming weeks, as, as well as cryptocurrency and I'm actually looking forward to kind of getting back into the re- one of the reasons I've been following this COVID-19 pandemic so close is I think, uh, well, there's multiple reasons, but it's also dramatically affecting crypto. And I think that um, the two are, are kind of married in that way. And so, uh, but I am looking forward to kind of doing more dive into cryptocurrency. Uh, 
you know, like we did a piece on Bitcoin's hash rate, mm-hmm. um, predicted it declining pretty rapidly after the happening, which it's done. But, uh, but yeah, most, most of what I'm putting out there right now, I think is COVID-19. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's really uh, one of my favorite conversations, definitely that I've that I've had yet. Very, very enlightening, and I think we touched on a lot of things that um, people are really wondering about. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. And you have a great afternoon. You too. Speak soon. Let's go. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at seven a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.